Indeed, the fragrance I breathe into my lungs now, the smoke of flowers. My name is Sara Rogo, and you're listening to Alchemy Through Artistry, a podcast where we inspire artists through the mystical and the esoteric. What you just heard was a haiku by Ian McCarter, a hospice nurse, musician, and artist. Today I have him back on Alchemy Through Artistry to discuss death. Confronting death is not just about your physical life, but maybe confronting deaths in every single moment of our day and of our existence. With a pandemic sprung upon us this year, it has forced all of us to take a look at our own physical life, but also the life and the death of our expectations and what we should be or what the world should be. Ian McCarter. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> it's so good to talk to you again, have you back on the podcast. Um, our last conversation was probably one of my favorite podcast episodes that I've ever done. Mm. Yeah, me too. It was really, really special. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't listened before, uh, we talked about death and art and we dove into Ian's work as not only a hospice nurse, but as a songwriter uh, recording legacy songs for um, hospice patients. So there's around the topic of, of death and living, there's so much detail and conversation. We could just talk for hours. <laughs> uh, but I want to start by asking, what, what have you been up to? During yeah. these crazy, crazy times. <laughs> yeah, well, they've definitely been crazy times, but I've, um, you know, the, the good thing about us as artists, you know, we kind of have a different lens to see difficulty through and tragedy through. And that's what kind of essentially took me to Mexico this year. I've gone every year uh, for Day of the Dead um, for the past four years and thankfully just been able to develop some lovely relationships and friendships down there. And some of my colleagues work in hospice as well and transpersonal psychology and some are physicians and psychotherapists. And so um, we found a really direct application for the legacy songs, kind of going beyond the bedside, if you will, back out into the world to supply a little more of a lens for others through music. And, um, so we began in good old Mexico City and San Miguel de Allende. And then I had a friend who, uh, they were just starting this hospice in Morelia in Michoacan last year. And so it had been about a year. And um, we were able to share a, a collection of these legacy songs that I've written from patients that have passed through this year. And in Mexico, you know, they have what's called an ofrenda. And that's where they take pictures of their family members and their loved ones um, and they put them as, as like a little altar and then they put their favorite food and their favorite flowers and things that represent who they were throughout their lives. And they take that time on those days to deeply remember who they were and essentially what they left behind. And so it was really great to bring these songs in concert, what we call a legacy concert, um, to kind of be a musical ofrenda. You know, it's like musical altars to these people that kind of rekindles an element of their spirit that uh, mm -hmm. can help us remember. And we did that there. And then we went to Uropan and, and went to our friend's grief counseling workshop center 
and they work with people for months on end that suffer tragic losses through murder. You know, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty rough stuff out there wow. in some circles, you know, with the cartel and stuff. And, um, and they deal with a lot of just natural deaths as well, but, you know, processing loss and developing the courage to be able to transform your perspective around it, um, is what they do. And they do it really beautifully. And we got to spend time with their team and present the legacy concert to their team as well. Yeah. And I mean, just to be clear to the listeners, um, if it wasn't, if it wasn't clear enough. So Ian, um, is a hospice nurse and he writes these songs called legacy songs. So he sits with dying patients and he gathers their stories, um, memories, et cetera, feelings, um, and writes a song, um, kind of in honor of their life. Is that a kind of a correct, yeah, exactly. correct description? Okay. Yep. So yeah, I just wanted to, to make that clear in case if anybody hasn't listened to our last uh, death and art episode. But I mean, you know, it's interesting as a musician who um, myself, who is so uh, passionate about touring mm-hmm. um, and, and this is a very interesting take on touring, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, 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 you are on tour. It's like you're on a, a death tour, which is really brings a really meaningful relationship back to what touring actually is. It Mm. doesn't always necessarily mean playing in, uh, you know, bars or famous venues. I mean, it could be anything from playing music in yoga studios to, um, or to, to what you're doing. So I, I find it's really cool that you have a very like particular mission and vision with, with this project and especially with the day of the dead down in Mexico. I find that just so, so fascinating. And I'm wondering if you could dive in a little bit, um, with the the day of the dead, some of the practices, because it sounds like what you do with your songs and, and hospice patients is very similar to how, um, you know, the Mexican culture practice day of the dead with pictures and little memorabilia. Yeah. I think that's what really initially attracted me to that culture and that ceremony is I saw a very rich and mature uh, tradition that had been carried on for so many years. And then <laughs> I was just at the time starting to scratch the surface with legacy songwriting. And I was just, you know, I, I saw a great teacher before me essentially. And so I'm like, okay, I have to learn more about what this means. And there's a really beautiful mystical quality to it that is more based on uh, the belief of the continuation of the soul and its return on that night and the ceremonies around that, that's lovely in itself. But the practicality of what's healed with that tradition is what really appealed to me because it's very um, bold to grieve and they grieve very well. And it's almost an art down there. And they're, they're very supported in that process of, of uh, feeling pain from the loss of something so deeply loved and it's really really healthy to express and cycle all that pain and mm. transform it through that uh refinement into love and joy again and art yeah. and celebration and that's a yeah. huge part of it right and so uh it's just something in the west that we kind of struggle with many times you know i deal with it regularly in the medical profession is 
trying to twist people's arms to to grieve properly. And it's a really vulnerable and, and powerful thing that we're very ill-equipped to do sometimes without the proper support. And what really fascinated me about Mexico is is uh, they all do it. You know, it's it's something on that day where they all gather for days in preparation and then all night long they sit together many times and just grieve and tell stories and and they have music supplementing that sometimes. Like there was a vignette that really struck me my first year in Mexico and I was at a grave site in uh, Guanajuato City and <clears throat> there was this huge mariachi band that was playing just for this family at their mausoleum. And the visuals were incredible. It was like all these gray stones and just elegant carvings. And then these vibrant orange flowers, the marigolds that were just trimming everything. And then there was probably a 10 piece, I think it was either 10 or 12 mariachi musicians all decked out in this vibrant blue. Oh, their outfits were just magnificently blue and then all their trumpets and trombones and tubas were perfectly bronzed and shining and and these people just wept and kind of basked in that emotional experience while these musicians just loved on them and just mm. played these songs to just sweep them away and uh i really haven't felt anything quite like that since that impression and then you talk to these people and they're just like, yeah, this is how you move on. You know, this is how you can face something that you potentially would fear. You know, you, you fear that feeling and the pain of reflection and longing for something that's no longer there. But then they have this art to it to where they can tr just dive in holding each other's hand and then heal and go on to life and have more of an intimacy with of what was so loved and and then lost yeah it's like the the, the bravery to face death the bravery to grieve uh, I think is something, as you were saying, is kind of lost in our current society. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be with a physical death of a person. Right. I mean, let's take 2020. <laughs> mm. Even, uh, let's just say, as an artist, like grieving the infrastructure of the music business as we know yeah. it. Grieving the parts of ourselves that have died because they just needed to die. Mm. And I, I think death is not faced enough. And I think the the day of the dead and, and the Mexican culture has a beautiful way of facing death through celebration and through art. And um, I would love to, to see us try to incorporate more ways to slowly start to face death. I mean, we go through it every year with a winter, you know, before this call, me and you were talking about, you know, the transition from summer to autumn to winter. We need to grieve that. Right. I mean, we're surrounded by analogy everywhere. You know, it's the the poetry of change. You know, it's like, it's a really fitting time of year right now. We're in the winter at the end of a year where many Many normal things have essentially passed away. And uh, 
I was just talking to someone in Nashville today and just they were really <laughs> sad on how the culture's changed over there musically with all the performance venues and stuff that just can't sustain in these times. And so what do you do with that? You know, it's like, you know, you. I think when you're faced with that proverbial death and there's not a real, like there's not a, an outcome that's expected, it takes a lot of faith and a lot of hope to just carry on through it, you know, and to just face that mystery with, with courage, like you said. And I think there's, there's many shapes that faith can take from what I've seen. So many different people have so many different vehicles of faith. And it's just to know that the spring is beyond the winter, you know, to know that that hope of new bloom can come and essentially will given on the seeds that were planted in the past and, you know, kind of the, the hopes that were invested in at one point. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm noticing, you know, just the natural cycles of nature is life and death. Obviously, you know, like wildfires are inevitable. They come and they destroy. Viruses come in cycles. They come and they destroy. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious of what you think the lessons COVID-19 as like an entity, as a, as a spirit mm-hmm. has for us. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, it's, well, I think it goes hand in hand with what I've been able to observe in my patients and these people I walk with through essentially that ultimate entity. You know, they're facing their own mortality and the oblivion of this version of life that they've known for so long. And it's very much like an entity. You know, it's almost like this figure that's waiting for you or oppressing you. And some people choose to walk with that figure and to acquaint themselves with it and not resist him. Um, Yeah, it's almost like you can lock him out at the door, as they say, or you can invite him in for dinner. And the most successful victors over that entity were the ones that befriended it and not tried to tried to slay it or anything or or shoo it away and i see essentially covid being a nice little symbol of that ultimate entity and how i think in my conversations that i've had with a lot of people that they've considered death many more times than they would have in a normal year <laughs> given our just you know just the magnitude of all that's what's been going on and I think there's a sovereignty that comes with familiarity. And I think there's so many variations of how people have been affected by what's happened this year, financially, emotionally. Um, I've witnessed maybe more personally um, the emotional turmoil that comes from isolation. And in a nutshell, like I've never seen more people die alone this year than, uh, well, than I ever have, ever. And so there's some pretty heavy stuff, you know, a lot of really potent afflictions that have just knocked people 
back in a way that they've never been knocked before. And I, I just, my hope is that people can find tools to begin to shape their perspectives around what all of this can teach us. You know, I think that's the whole point. If, if we can't learn from, from uh, this kind of discord, then essentially it goes by with less potential for meaning. But I just love the example of, uh, I bring up this example quite a bit, actually, by Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, um, where he was just swept away by a pretty heavy circumstance, needless <laughs> to say the least, of being in a concentration camp as a prisoner. And how his perspective changed his experience when he realized that he could use these experiences to learn and then to give back to others to begin to understand why it all happened. And like to understand, in his case, the human condition more deeply. And I think that same potential's everywhere today, you know, with all the... Uh, yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's. it's causing us to face death all of us who who have been healthy or haven't you know really thought about what it means to die i mean when when covid-19 was kind of uh you know at the beginning of it we didn't know what it was or how it was or why it was i mean and the healthiest person was was afraid to go into the grocery store and i think that will will rattle rattle anybody and some some people in the world haven't really uh been faced with uh mortality before consciously. Um, so I think it's just like a universal, um, you know, reminder that like we are, we are mortal, we are mortal beings and, and what are we going to do in this time on earth and, and what is fear and, and how is fear going to rule or not rule our lives? It's, it's just, it's in our nature to, um, you know, to be afraid of, to be afraid of death. Yeah, it's that instinct for self-preservation, you know. It's like, I don't want to be injured. I don't want to be uh, <laughs> extinguished. I want to be healthy and vibrant, and I want to feel like I'm immortal, really. You know, deep down, I think uh, that illusion kind of draws a lot of us in this Western Western world, you know, the illusion of eternal youth and stuff like that. So I think the sobering and potential of what this year's brought could be really moving and changing for many. And I think that that kind of confrontation is necessary, you know, to really expand your awareness of how fragile you really are. You know, I think that was a great point. Just, you know, the healthiest person's now afraid to go to the grocery store because, you know, their fragility is exposed. You know, they, this, human machine that they live in is all of a sudden very, <laughs> there's a different potential on the table now. And, and a lot of people deal with that in different ways. And from what I found, and this is very much what I try to express with the ashes drawings is how, when you get to a point where you can wield that fear or you can wield that realization of that fragility, it opens your eyes to a world of gratitude and wonder in relation to the gift of this life that you have and the fact that you you can cherish its fragility and and be propelled in a way once you transcend that fear you can be propelled into this tremendous action 
and a depth that potentially you had no access to before. Yeah. And it's even like the beauty of a flower or an eggshell or something, yeah. you know, it's, it's fragile mm -hmm. and, or a baby, like it's, it's, um, it's fragile. And it's like, can we allow our, I mean, yes, we want our hearts to be and to be resilient, but can we allow ourselves to feel the fr fragility of, uh, our hearts and our emotions and allow ourselves to break yeah. if we need to break? You know? Yeah, exactly. And that's a difficult place to get to without the proper support. You know, I think in our culture, it's, you know, maybe perceived as weak to be vulnerable like that or to allow yourself to be broken and broken being a bad word, you know, but mm -hmm. it's those moments where I've, I've seen people crack open, like literally that's when the light can come through. And, you know, it's like that heart is then exposed and the truth is then revealed and all the lies and illusions and facades that were put up over the years can just be stripped away. And that gentle love within can be essentially set free at that point, you know, from that, that cage that we've <laughs> built around it over all the years. And so a lot of things that have provoked that kind of breaking in these modern times, I think, um, I've seen a lot of good come from it as well. So let's talk about art a mm -hmm. little bit. <clears throat> Our favorite Our thing. Favorite. We I love, love art. art. <laughs> you know, okay, I want you to talk a little bit about um, the Ashes drawings, because I don't think any of our listeners um, know uh, about you and the Ashes drawings. And I want to talk maybe a little bit about haikus and, and just different ways that we can, um, we can, and then ways that you have personally um, learned how to celebrate death or confront death um, and, and help others with the process of grieving and, and facing their own mortality. Sure. Yeah, the the Ashes drawings have been a really personal meditation that began with my studies of the human body over the past 15 years or so. I was going to art school at the same time as nursing school, essentially. So I got the insides of the body from anatomy and physiology and, you know, just the... Um, the uh, mechanics of all the body systems and stuff. So I really got a nice window into what we're made of and then really studying the, how to put it all together with art and figurative art, like a classical Renaissance training is what I had essentially over the years. And as those worlds kind of walked together for so long and as my current philosophies were developing, I just saw this really beautiful connection between using the image of the human body to explore the potential of how can, how to really see it. You know, it's like how to really witness your own machine and its potential given its limited time and it's uh, really, uh, it's, relatively unstable state, you know, like there's so many elements going on to make us work normally. It's just mind blowing. And if one little thing goes wrong, then you have a disease or something. So it's, I've seen, you name it, and I've seen the variation that can happen. And so uh, personally, being a young man working with 
death in hospice for these years, it's just been a really interesting shift in my awareness of my own body and my own gift of life, really, and how, like many can relate, I can take things for granted really quickly. You know, the best of circumstances, if if given to me for too long, I can just, you know, look over it as something so granted. Um, and so my mom actually recommended this connection. She's just like, you know, you, you write music from the words of those that are now gone for the sake of keeping that perspective moving. So why don't you do the same with art, you know, except instead of words, you're using essentially cremated remains. It's like the essence of who this person once was now potential to go on to create something new. And there's a really poetic element in that that really attracts me deeply in how the flower that once had bloomed, you know, it's now gone back into the earth and then blooms into something completely different that still has life in its own way. And so over the years, I've been able to collect some ashes of my patients and then also people that um, essentially were forgotten and people that had never had a memorial and, and stuff like that. And so I blend all of these people together and mix it with charcoal and, and rose dust. It's old rose petals that my beloved gave me a long time ago, and we crush it into a pigment. And then these first drawings in the series are self-portraits. And so I'm using this medium to really see myself in a way that I'd never been able to see myself before. And it's very much a reverent process of priming the canvas with the ashes and and acknowledging that these people were once alive in human form and they were breathing and they were striving and they were trying to awaken in their own ways and now they're gone. And, you know, some of these people I've, I witnessed the day of their death. And so it just really holds an impact for me emotionally with these ashes. And as I create this tone on the white paper, it's almost like the representation of the mystery and the, mm. the shadow, essentially. And then the next step is drawing light out of that. I use a, a kneaded eraser and I kind of draw backwards, which is where I look for the light shapes instead of just drawing with lines. And as I explore the form, it's like exploring that mystery at the same time. It's like, how can we find light from the dark? And how can the realization of my end and my returning, my own returning to the dust, you know, my essentially my returning to the ashes that I'm working with at that very moment, um, how can that bring forth new life and help me cherish this machine that I have and, and to do good with it and to, to see it as just this incredible gift just to be alive. You know, it's a pretty good baseline mm. <laughs> to start with. And then everything mm. else is just wonderful frosting on top. And so um, it's my hope that, you know, with these drawings, when they're when they're finished, I'm working on the third right now. Actually, the, the second are right next to me in my little studio. Um, 
as a series, I I would I just think that it it could potentially provoke people to begin to engage with that same contemplation. You know, it's not like they're going to go out and necessarily get ashes and draw themselves with it, but it's what it says that I'm hoping can really be yeah. taken to heart. Just it's that you don't know what you've got until it's gone type of irony that really fascinates mm. me. Yeah. And, and facing, facing ashes. Right. I mean, it's, you know, and, and ashes turned into art, you know, because the ashes are the remains of the physical body. And, you know, from a spiritual perspective is that we are so much more than the physical body. And once we die, our body is, is just, just a, a the sack of right. bones. So the fact that it's like you're taking this like cremated sack of bones and you are making it <clears throat> into living eternal art with shadows and light, um, you know, and depth. It's just, there's a whole, you're, you're unveiling different aspects of art that like, I don't, I, at least I haven't, seen really touched before at least in my my realm of um yeah and that goes for me too before the idea was born and it just it struck me i'm just like okay this is this has some meaning to it you know and this is a journey worth exploring um and i've seen Mm -hmm. it represented in in other ways you know through of course the the live and in-person <laughs> medical experiences and all the psychological and spiritual and philosophical applications that essentially are the same analogy of, of what the art's trying to describe. But mm. there's something very quiet and soft and gentle about visual art to me, you know, in a world where there's so much, so much noise, um, I feel that the subtlety and the context to these pieces could really speak and speak, speak in a very loud yeah. whisper. Hmm. Hmm. And, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about mm. haikus. I, I know you have a love for mm. the haiku. Um, and I know you, you often teach uh, uh, retreats around kind of death and art. And I know haikus are a central, central point of that. And, um, you know, a, a handful of years ago, I, I found that book, um, The Japanese Death Haikus. And I'm sure you're, you're familiar mm. with that book. Um, Talk a little bit about what the haiku means to you and then what it means to you in terms of uh, using it as facing facing yeah. death. Yeah, that, that Japanese death poem book is top of my pile. I just, I love the simplicity of that book. And in what that in relation to the haiku really means to me is that it's very contained it's not, it doesn't leave a lot of room to be verbose or uh, grand. You know, it's very focused. Yeah. And also, could you just, just uh, in a nutshell, to a listener who doesn't happen to know what a haiku is, give a little explanation of a sure. haiku. So there's a really lovely, rich history to haiku that I don't know offhand. <laughs> As far as something I could share, you know, but, but just in, in a, a nutshell, nutshell, it's a very so it's short a, poem. It's a poem. Right, it's and it's comprised poem. of three lines, yeah. and it has to be 
five syllables, seven syllables, and then five syllables to total three lines of poetry. That's five, three or five, seven, five. And what I really love about that is because is uh, it makes a little container, you know, to where it doesn't allow for a lot of distraction. And it's essentially describing a present moment. And what I love about the Japanese death poem angle is that it's these people's final impression. You know, it's that final glimpse while standing in their shoes, essentially, and and, and all the beauties maybe that they overlooked and just the simple, the most gorgeous simplicities of a present moment that the rest of us just race by and you know, there's other books like Tuesdays with Maury and and I've seen this represented in my own encounters with death through my hospice patients again and again is how they see life in a way that we're all striving to see it, but we're too distracted. And we don't see it as, it's not as precious as it needs to be to the rest of us. And it's when you're faced with death that you really realize the preciousness of everything you took for granted. And so the haikus in that capacity just were incredibly moving. I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, and then I started to adapt it as my own practice to where I try to imagine, and I say a prayer about it too, because really I, I try to approach this concept really humbly because, you know, I don't think there's a real way that I can see as though someone who's truly dying, there's just such a magnitude to the, to the truth of that. But I've also seen people my age die in front of me due to tragic circumstances that completely took them by surprise. And so I kind of combine it with like, okay, this could be my last day. You know, I try to really realize that potential and Mm. I pray. I'm just like, please give me a moment that, I wouldn't have noticed otherwise by just contemplating this potential, you know, and to really honor the, the potential truth that I could very well die tomorrow or at any given time at all, you know. And so I'll just meditate with that for a second. And there's all kinds of different feelings that come up when you really kind of dip your feet deeper into the water and feelings of longing or you know, sometimes this strange joy comes and like different different perspectives and perceptions of, of what you're experiencing in that very moment too. And so typically as a daily practice, I'll do that and each time I'll catch one of those moments and I'll just, like you're fishing almost, and I catch that fish and I'll write a haiku about that moment, just that moment. And I try not to get it too complicated. Um, because you start collecting these glimpses, right? And you start compiling these moments to where there's just a little more insight than you would have had if you just kind of wandered through your day. And I've got a book full of them, actually, and I like to go through them every now and then when I'm feeling especially distracted or depressed or something. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just remember all these moments that were so precious and simple. And it just really pulls me back. Can you, uh, can you read, um, another one from, from your book? 
<laughs> I wrote this one at the retreat this year. Uh, May the last drink be not from the sand of mirage, but nectar of love. Hmm. Ah. Oh. Love that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> There's some nice ones. That's a There's fancy nice haiku. haiku in this little book. <laughs> yeah, and it, sure. Read another one. Give us another one. Give us I'll, one more. I'll read Give you us one, one more. The, the retreat at sunset when we all were at the hilltop writing these. Um, oh, this is nice. Painted on needles, pines dipped in sweet golden light, honey, piercing heart. Oh, amazing. They're nice. So, yeah, I mean, if anybody, I think that's that's a really great place for exactly. people to start. It's very exactly. palatable. And that's... It's very palatable. So if anybody's interested in, in the haiku, it's it's five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. Right. And, uh, and that's why I love to introduce that practice at these retreats that I host, because they're... The attendees aren't always artists, you know, like my associates many times are more from the arts, but sometimes they're in psychology or they're in medicine or they're just people on their journey to find more purpose. And so, you know, telling them to write a song or like write a, you know, a speech or, or anything that requires any kind of expanded creative faculty can be really intimidating and uh, the haiku is not, thankfully. It's very simple, and it just allows people to really be on even ground with each other. And it's amazing, the haikus that these people write who've never written a poem in their entire life. And it's it just, they allow themselves to see a little bit more clearly and a little more vulnerably. And, and that opens mm. the eye of the artist, you know, it, it, the eye of the poet. And when combined with how life and death really can tune your perspective to see the precious, preciousness of what's normal or the preciousness of the ordinary, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's all we need. You know, I think mm. having the eyes of a child, essentially, it's where everything has wonder again. And you're grateful for everything again. And then that just breathes such a love into everything. And when you pull a little poem out of that, as small as a haiku may be, it's just rich. And it's really special moments at these gatherings uh, where everybody shares these together. And talk about the the shadow and they talk about the light that comes from it and and how the poetry kind of gave them a uh, a platform to stand on you know where may uh, many times these contemplations can be daunting because they're pretty real you know like the potential of your own death is very real and when you dance with that, it can be really scary. And it's like, what do I do with this? How do I come back? But then haiku or the expectation that you're going to create something from that exploration can be very grounding. And knowing that whatever you take, you can take back to the people that you trust, like this 
community that we have, um, it it allows you to proceed where maybe otherwise you would have turned back. Well, Ian McCarter, I want you to tell us all where we can um, find your music, where we can um, get in tune with your workshops or all of your your wanderings, explorations. Where can we My find you? My website's the best place to start, um, ianmccarter.com. Uh, proper spelling is essential. <laughs> and that's where I, I have a newsletter that I share weekly updates on new songs and um, new artwork, of course, and then any updates on retreats that people can participate in in the future. And we do have plans for Mexico mm-hmm. um, and San Miguel de Allende. We're going to do kind of an artistic exploration around applying the perspectives that we discussed about Day of the Dead and what it means in normal life and, and what we can do with it. And my friends are really deep into the history of the culture too. So we're going to have a nice historical application as well as artistic and philosophical. And then of course the French castle, Mm -hmm. if Europe is convenient enough to collect again, we'll do that annual Mm -hmm. event. Um, It's looking like maybe more of a songwriter angle as far as next year goes. Um, Still in the works, but uh, it'll be great Mm -hmm. if we can do it. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I do. I love your newsletter. I love the the kind of the poetry and the updates. It's just it's that's a lot mm-hmm. more than updates. So, so everybody uh, sign up for Ian's newsletter. I'll make sure to link Ian's website in the description of this podcast. Thank you, Ian, so much for joining uh, us today. It's it's just such a pleasure, and I'm sure you'll be on again, and we'll just have more and more to talk about um, as this life uh, moves on. So. Um, close us out with a haiku. Is this the last time that I may see the morning painted on white rose? Thank you guys so much for tuning in. My name is Sarah. If you want to check out some of my music and work, you can find it at www.rogothewild.com or Rogo the Wild on Facebook and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please like it and subscribe so we can get it out to more listeners around the world.